Uh, But let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks, uh, who speaks so that we might know and enjoy you forever. Uh, So please, in your kindness, grant us now to hear your word and to hear it with faith, to delight in the truth and live by it. And please help me uh, in my weakness to speak clearly and helpfully as I should. For your glory we pray. Amen. Uh, In my first year of Bible college, uh, I lived on campus uh, and, as you'd expect, as good, Bible-loving, diligent theological students, life on campus was marked by two habits, uh, table tennis and Macca's runs. Uh, On one particular occasion, late in the evening, a group of us went to Macca's uh, for late-night food. We sat down, we said grace, and then began to thoroughly enjoy the clogging of our arteries. But as we ate, uh, a group of young rowdy guys came and stood around us and loud enough said, really for the whole restaurant to hear, a boy, you don't hear people praying about McDonald's very often, do you? Uh, We then chatted with them for a little while and they went on their way. Uh, But after they left, one of the guys having a meal with us uh, kind of leaned in and silently said, well, that was just a bit awkward, wasn't it? Maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Now, I suspect if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, uh, the scene is both familiar as is the feeling. Uh, I was chatting with a a dad here at Bundy recently uh, and who was telling me about uh, they invited their neighbours over for dinner and just before dinner, his daughter came to him pleading with him to not say grace before dinner because it would just be awkward. You see, it's that vital question of how different, how overt are we going to be about our Christianity in the various aspects of life? Whether it's removing yourself from the Bucks party uh, as the night progresses, maybe it's withdrawing from a conversation that descends into gossip or slander at work, maybe it's saying no to the shots and the drinking game at the party or just the extra drink out with friends that will tip you over the edge of being in control. You see, the Christian life is often filled with moments that will just feel awkward. And for most Christians, this will come with the temptation to retreat or withdraw or even just be ashamed. Uh, If you haven't been here over the past four weeks, we've been following Paul's answer to the Corinthian question about eating food sacrificed to idols that dominates chapters 8 to 10. And tonight we come to the end, the crescendo of the argument and the answer that Paul gives. The Corinthians want to know if they have the right to eat or not. And if you haven't been here, we've uh, began to, he began to address their question by saying, really, it's the wrong question. Christians not live by rights, nor are we governed by what we are free to do, but by what is loving. So in chapter 8, Paul said he'd never eat meat again if it was going to cause somebody to stumble, to hinder another Christian. Then in chapter 9, he detailed his own example of how he lived among the Corinthians. He gave up his rights as a minister of the gospel to be paid for their benefit. And he did this because of the severity, the seriousness, the importance of being saved by Jesus. He becomes all things to all people for their salvation. And because salvation is so serious, so important, we invest not only in others knowing Jesus, but ensuring that we're faithful to Jesus until the end. 
So as we heard last week, Paul urged both the Corinthians and us to flee idolatry. Being set free by Jesus does not mean we become blasé about sin and idolatry. And now tonight, our passage, Paul comes to the end, the crescendo of his argument by returning to the specific question of eating food offered to idols, but again, not really, simply with a yes or no. Remember, he's modelling for us how to live in a world saturated by idolatry. And he reminds them that a commitment of a Christian is not simply what can I do, but what is good for others. And see, this principle was hard for the Corinthians to accept because they, like us, lived in a culture that championed individual rights. We see it in verse 23 as Paul quotes them twice. Everything is permissible, they say. It's like their mantra of life. They had the exact same thing back in chapter 6. They were very much a my body, my choice kind of people. As their commitment to freedom and rights saw them embrace all kinds of sexual immorality like visiting the prostitutes. But Paul quotes them again here because clearly it was their approach to the issue of food offered to idols. Everything is permissible. And it's worth noting that Paul doesn't deny the freedom and rights of a Christian. Christians are free. It was essential to what he probably taught them when he went to Corinth. We're free from the superstitions and fear of the gods that dominated the culture. Free from fear of judgment because they knew the one true living God had saved them through Jesus. We're free. But just as he did in chapter 6, he quotes them and qualifies it. Verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Just as he did in chapter 8. He reminds Christians that they do not live in isolation. We live in community. Being free to eat does not mean it's always beneficial to eat. Exercising our freedom and rights will not necessarily build others up, but actually might hinder them, or in chapter 8, might even destroy them as it leads them to sin. And so Paul's recapping what he said in chapters 8 and 9. The Christian commitment is not to freedom or rights, but to live for the good of others, verse 24. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. This is Christianity 101. The core Christian commitment, says Paul. And just as he did in chapter 8, he now applies that commitment to the question of eating food offered to idols. But there in chapter 8, the focus was seeking the good of another Christian whose conscience was weak on the issue of idols and who couldn't eat the food. But here in chapter 10, the good is applied to unbelievers in two main contexts. Firstly, in verse 25, it's about buying meat from the market. You see, almost all, if not all, meat available for purchase came via the temple. It would have been offered to a god in sacrifice to then distributed for sale. Then in verse 27, it's being served to you in the home of an unbeliever. And in both cases, notice Paul's quite clear, you can eat. In both scenarios, these are expected parts of life. Coming into contact with food offered to idols in Corinth was just an unintentional reality. And Paul says, eat, free to eat. Because you know, verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. 
It's a quote from our first reading that Andrew read for us, Psalm 24, verse 1. Christians can eat the food because of this reality. There's only one God and all things belong to him. All things are from him. So you can eat the food and be thankful. It's why we say grace. It's why we give thanks before all meals because our food is from the true and living God. And so whether it's Macca's, Minty's or a Marble Score 8 Wagyu, eat and give thanks. This reality means, notice, that you don't even have to ask questions about it. Where it came from in verse 25 or in verse 27, don't even bring it up. It doesn't matter because whether it's offered to a God in sacrifice or not, this is food from God and you can eat it with thanks. But that's not the end of the discussion, just as it wasn't in chapter 8. You're free to eat in either context, but if it comes up that the food was offered to an idol, do not eat it. Verse 28. If someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it, out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your your own conscience, but the other person's. You can picture it, can't you? It's been a great night already. People are laughing, drinking, and the host comes around with the meal and then someone innocently asks, what are we having? And the host should say to you, well, praise be to Zeus. It's lamb cutlets. Or all glory to Aphrodite. It's char-grilled ribeye. And they come around the table. They arrive at you. And with heart beating fast, you say no. No matter how perfectly it's been cooked, basted and rested, no matter how hungry you are, no matter how even limited your eating options are going to become if you say no, you say no thank you. And why? Well, notice not because the food is somehow changed, not because it's tainted and now this is dangerous idolatry. It's not actually about the food at all. It's for the sake of the one who told you and their conscience, verse 28. You see, remember, the conscience is that inner moral decision maker that tells you what's right or wrong. But for the Christian, our conscience is theological, It applies what we believe about God to our decision-making in life. And Paul says, don't eat for the sake of their conscience because what does it tell them if they tell you that it's food offered to an idol, then you eat it? What does it say to them? What does it say if you eat knowing it's gone in worship to another God? Well, actually, it says to them that ultimately you endorse their idolatry. You're okay with it. Perhaps it says to them that it's even compatible with your worship of God or your view of God. Or maybe at the very least, it just seems to them inconsistent and hypocritical. Maybe you dislike steak more than God. And so he says, for their good, for their sake, you will say no. For their benefit, you will say no because you cannot and you do not endorse idolatry. 
But you can already hear and feel the Corinthians bursting to interject it. You say, hold up, right? You're saying, I'm free to eat. I can give thanks to God for anything I eat, but if someone is to mention the origins of this, I have to say no. And Paul says, that's right. And to make it perfectly clear, he then gives two rhetorical questions that seem actually contradictory to his argument in verse 29. Now look at what he says, verse 29. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? At first, it seems like they don't really kind of help his point about eating, not eating for the sake of someone else, right? Why is my freedom being judged by somebody else? If I'm thankful for the food, why am I being criticized for it? But notice, that's exactly the point. Why are you? Why are you letting your freedom become cause for judgment and criticism from another person? You see, being free to eat, even being thankful for the food, does not justify putting yourself in a situation that causes another person to actually think you support idolatry or are just inconsistent in the way you obey God. And you can already hear the Corinthians interjecting and complaining. Perhaps it's exactly what some of us are thinking already. Isn't it just awkward? Isn't it actually rude and offensive? And if you followed Paul throughout his argument in chapters nine to, uh, 8 to 10, isn't this even just a little bit inconsistent with his call to be flexible and to be all things to all people back in chapter 9? Isn't this the kind of thing that just puts people off, makes us seem like religious nutters who can't get along well with others? Imagine the whole table turning in shock and disapproval to stare at you. Last invitation I'll get. Not just from this host, but from anyone else once word gets out. So awkward, so costly. But is it? You see, I think that line of thinking is so familiar for us about many aspects of being a Christian. Where all we do is contemplate, imagine the awkwardness and offence that we'll cause. No one wants that kind of person in their workplace. No one wants that person in their friendship group or certainly not around their dining table. Or do they? You see, because at the heart of our logic is often confusion, I think, about what is actually good for the other person who does not yet follow Jesus. Commenting on this passage, John Dixon says, the occasional withdrawal from pagan banquets would present a clear critique of paganism and would very likely lead to an opportunity for believers to explain or defend the Christian position. And you still might think, really? Would it? But why are we so certain that showing a clear commitment to Jesus publicly, modelling what worship and loyalty to the only true God looks like, will immediately result in rejection and hostility. Now, to be clear, it might, and you might have examples where that's already been the case for you. 
But that doesn't mean it is necessarily the case. Nor does actually it mean that a hostile response you might get actually meant it was a bad course of action. And so I think it leads us to an important, yet perhaps uncomfortable question to reflect on that I've actually wrestled a lot with this week. And that is, is our commitment to what we think will offend others and put them off actually a thinly veiled idol of comfort? That it's a commitment to an easy life more than a godly one? Do we easily defend not doing things, not being too overtly Christian, either in our words or our actions, ultimately be because we value our comfort, our acceptance, our reputation or tension-free friendship more than we value the salvation and eternity of our friends. It is a good yet unsettling question. Now, there is a balance, of course. This is not the call to be an obnoxious, thoughtless and deliberately antagonistic Christian. It's giving a no, not a lecture. But in the scale of being totally obnoxious and antagonistic to being silent and cowardly, I think I know that one is far more likely than the other. So what about you? I recently heard this quote, which I think captures this uh, perfectly. It's from a New York journalist. His name is Ben Sixsmith. He's a non-Christian and he is writing, commenting on the sacking of a Hillsong pastor after he was found to be unfaithful to his wife. At the end of his article, he says this, I am not religious and so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should or should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Paul is asking us to stop and to think, what is actually good for our non-Christian friends? What do we want them to understand about God through our life and through our words? Is somebody seeing the worthiness, the glory of Jesus through your life more important to you than your social comfort or even your reputation? See, that's what's at stake when it comes to saying no at the dinner table for the Corinthians. Will they be different? Will the lordship of Jesus shine clearly through their life as they live in a culture of idolatry? And remember, that question is so helpful and relevant for us because as we heard last week, idolatry is so much more than temples and statues. This is question 17 of the New City Catechism. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for hope, happiness, significance, and security. Hope, happiness, significance, security. Our world has plenty of idols for all of them. 
whether career or money, a relationship, success, a property or children. We're in a world searching for meaning and fulfillment in every other place than it can be truly found. They are chasing after the wind. And what do we want them to see in us? What do we want them to think about God through our lives as the Christians they know? People who profess Jesus to be Lord. Paul's asking, are we actually committed to them considering the uniqueness and greatness of Jesus through our lives? Now again, I think it's fun to picture what the Corinthians are like at this point. As the the letter gets read out, you can see them squirming in their chairs. Look, all I really wanted to know, can I eat the food or not? That's all I asked. But he takes their question and he applies it to the very heart of being a Christian in verses 31 to 11.1. The goal, the core motivation of true Christianity. So whether you eat or drink, he says, whatever you do, Do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The Corinthians want to know about eating, about rights and freedom. But Paul answered with principles and applications of what brings glory to God. The goal and motivation of the Christian life for eating or drinking or whatever you do, it's for the glory of God. To glorify God is to ask, how can I use all of my life to show others that he is the all-satisfying, true Wonderful, creator God. It's to ask, how can I live in such a way as to make God look great, to be seen for who he truly is? It's to use your life to show that God really is that pearl of infinite worth, that he's the treasure in the field that you should give up everything to obtain. As the Westminster Confession opens, we glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's to give God the focus, the praise, the loyalty, the affection, the delight that he deserves that begins in our hearts of being captured by the greatness of God through Jesus. It begins in our hearts, then overflows and is expressed in how we treat others. That's where Paul goes in verse 32. It's what Jesus says. What's the greatest command? Love God, love neighbor. The two are inseparable. Glorifying God will be expressed in living for the good of others. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Now we need to clarify, of course, that by giving no offense, he does not mean don't do anything that might be offensive or uncomfortable for them. He's talking about hindering them to become confessors of Jesus as Lord, what the NIV helpfully calls not causing them to stumble. The goal's there, it's verse 33. Why? Because we want them to be saved. 
And Paul is tying together here all the themes of chapters 8 to 10. He says Jews and Greeks, which really is to speak of all unbelievers who come from different cultures with different habits and lifestyles. The church of God, that takes us back to chapter 8, talking about believers, especially other weak believers who are negatively influenced by our behavior. And the motivation of the Christian is to seek the good of all of them, the salvation, the perseverance of all of them for the glory of God. Do you notice the motivation of a Christian is united by it all being about others, for God and for people? And Paul is casting the net wide. This is to be our motivation in church and out of it. Whether it's your growth group or your workplace, your church or your footy, your friends, your family, your colleagues, the interested, the apathetic, all of them. That's my example, says Paul, but more importantly, it's Jesus's. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul says, look to Jesus. And that's so helpful because I think he knows that the Corinthians and us, this is a real battle. It's so out of step with our culture that says, you do you. Fulfill your dreams. Be all you can be. Don't let anybody stand in the way or worse, hinder your self-fulfillment. You have the right. You're free to live the life you want however you want for that alone is the true and authentic life. And so glorifying God as we seek the good and the salvation of others, it flies in the face of our self-autonomy gospel that our world promotes. But let's be honest, it also flies in the face of what is often our personal preference. And so Paul says, look to Jesus for the what and the why. Jesus who came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus who came to seek and save the lost by laying down his life in our very place taking God's just anger at our sin on himself. Imitate Jesus, who on the cross was mocked and humiliated for our sake. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Do you hear the irony of these statements as they mock Jesus? Not just the irony, but his example of seeking our good. He saved others. But it's not that he couldn't save himself. It's that he resolved not to. For in losing his life, he was gaining ours. Come down from the cross that we might see and believe, they say. Yet it's only because he was willing to stay on the cross that we can believe. You see, the heart of Jesus' example that we are to imitate is his devotion to seek the good of others in real, practical, and costly ways. He gave up his very life so that we would gain it. That's the example of Jesus. That's the example that Paul imitated amongst the Corinthians, and it's the example that we are to base our life on. But will we? 
as Paul has been unpacking the question of food sacrifice to idols. Far greater, far more important than simple yes or no is the core commitment to live for the good of others because of the chief motivation that is the glory of God as we follow the example of Jesus. And so as we hear the crescendo, the conclusion of Paul's answer, we too are being asked how Christ-centered, how Christ-like is our Christianity? Is it all about Jesus for him? so that others would know him as you live like him. As we too live in a culture that's saturated in idolatry, as we wrestle with the questions of what's good and honouring to Jesus, where we need to say no, of where there must be separation from what is normal, even celebrated in our culture, there will always be the temptation to compromise to take the easy road of conformity and silence that ultimately then embraces the idolatry of our culture. So if you're a Christian here tonight, how Christ-centred is your Christianity? And I've put it in the outline under three questions that I think capture the heart of what Paul has argued throughout this section. Firstly, and most obviously, is Jesus actually worth everything to you? Can you join with the chorus of heaven right now in singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honour, glory and praise? Is Jesus worth standing out for, losing reputation, friendship or job for as you stand for him? Worth the awkward, even costly moments in any area of your life? from saying no to that drink, from saying no to that relationship or no to that invitation. And I have no doubt that this is actually the genuine question and struggle of many of us. I think it's the most constant and urgent question that most teenagers face as they work out whether they will truly commit to live for Jesus or not. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? And I think if that's you, it's worth hearing that Jesus is not afraid of that question, but actually urges us to ask it in Luke 14. He says to be a Christian, to be a disciple, well, it's to be all in with Jesus. It's to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. It's the most important question you can ask because it's the question that will keep coming up for you in your Christian life over and over again as the need to say no becomes more prevalent and perhaps more costly. Is he really worth it? You're not alone in asking that question, so don't ask it alone. And especially, make sure you ask it so you are not just creating a version of Christianity that ultimately has Jesus as an idol you invented, where you don't have to be different, where you can just conform and ultimately he's okay with it. But if you're not yet a Christian here tonight, then please know that this is the most important thing we want you to take away tonight. Jesus is worth it. 
that being saved by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, it's the greatest, most important, soul-satisfying reality in the world. To repent and believe is to find life itself. And if you want to know more, if you want to know why, then get to know Jesus through his word. Ask questions of a Christian you know. Christ-centered Christianity says Jesus is worthy of everything and therefore the goal of everything. Whether you're at a party or at work, studying or parenting, whether you're in public or private, is it for Jesus? Paul says in Colossians 3.17 that part of how you know that is whether you are thankful to Jesus for everything. Are they all done with an awareness that they are all from him and for him, that your money is not your own, your abilities are not your own, your body is not your own because your life is not your own, you are bought at a price, you are his. And I know that that sounds crazy. Without the gospel, it's restrictive, overwhelming, oppressive. Without the gospel, you can be certain that will not be good for us. But we have the gospel. We have the good news of a good shepherd who laid down his life for us so that we might have life and have it to the full. Jesus who made us, knows us, loves us, calls us to follow him because it's what's best for us. So is your Christianity Christ-centered, that Jesus is the goal of everything? And finally, as he's the goal of everything, he, of course, is the need of everyone. That's actually the central reality that has permeated its way through every section of 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. All people need Jesus, need to know him, trust him, and be faithful to him. And because of that reality and need, we will make decisions that help others persevere in their faithfulness and especially will also mean we become all things to all people so that they might be saved, even if it means cost and awkwardness as we say no. So as we finish this little section on 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, We cannot help but ask, how much do I actually want people to be saved? How necessary is it actually for people to know Jesus? Do I genuinely want Christ to be celebrated and worshipped by those around me because that's what he deserves? And that's what will actually be best and good for them. Good, regardless of how content and successful their lives already are without him, regardless of how apathetic, antagonistic they are to him, am I convinced that just as people are destined to die once, they will face judgment? before the risen Jesus when he comes, and he will come. So how Christ-centered is your Christianity? Will you embrace the potentially awkward and costly 
for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that we might become truly rich. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. And we ask that in your kindness you would capture our hearts with his gospel now, that it would be our joy to live for your glory in all we do. Please work in us now to imitate him. And we long that through our lives you might cause more to be saved. Fix our eyes on Jesus to know the goodness of what he has done so that we might then go and do likewise. We ask for the glory of you, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.